ask you to stay continuously awake? I mean, no, no sleep? Yes, no, no sleep at all. Did you find yourself just um, <coughs> falling asleep um, unconsciously? Uh, no. It was, uh, it, it was really quite amazing. Um, part of the... Part of the reason that it, it worked is that uh, it was an intensely one-pointed concentration was the practice. There are 28 points on the body, you know, and you sort of you memorize them, you know, put your attention. You know, that was the practice. So you're doing this, you know, intensely focused thing, and so the mind can get, you know, really... And then to uh, loosen it up... Um, they took sleep away. And so I would be sitting there meditating and getting tired, and I knew this intense focus, but I just couldn't push anymore. As the, as the body energy went down, I just, you know, I, I just I couldn't force it. And so my mind would get very light and clear, but there was like no push. And that brought the whole thing back into balance. And then I would go, would go out very far. Um, what we do in this practice is we're actually balancing that all the way along, keeping the relaxation as we go along, rather than pushing it real hard and then doing these drastic measures to balance it out. Uh, and I think this method is just, uh, it's a lot healthier on the body and it uh, doesn't strain as much. But yeah, it, uh, it, it was amazing. After, after 24 hours, it wasn't difficult to stay awake. Uh, I could say, you know, get 18 to 24 hours, it'd be really groggy, etc., etc. And um, we didn't leave our kuti. You know, so I was in a little kuti that would sort of fit in here and they would bring food to the door. Uh, that was it. It's amazing practices people have. I'm not understanding. There's the quote that you didn't understand. The quote. The quote. You just said people The passages I was reading. So there's like the yesterday I wrote the. Uh, I found out the. I I didn't want to use the eight. Uh, eight oh oh. There's some quotes, right? Oh, the quotes on the back of that. Sure. So this one, the second paragraph. Uh, so this is from the Dhammapada. Uh, Even as rain penetrates an ill-thatched roof, uh, desire, dislike, and delusion penetrate an undeveloped mind, even as rain does not penetrate a well-thatched roof. Uh, desire, dislike, and delusion penetrate a well... Oops. You probably understand the quote perfectly. It's wrong. <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it, it should be uh, do not penetrate. Thank you. <laughs> it's good to know somebody reads these. I <laughs> Oh, yeah, I really like that one. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were trying to make a real point about that, that fish. Or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I really like Kabir, too. Uh, no, that was... Um, See, we really do read them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank you. I don't, I, I don't know whether to be grateful or scared. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I am so grateful for good editors, you know, because I uh, I just miss it completely. I'm so sorry. Just one last question. Sure. Would you be the same teacher you are today had you not gone through the three days that were just described? Because did it, did it somehow did it make it a difference, or or because you've not done that and still been you? Do you think? Um. Well, I'm certainly. Uh, the uh, total experience being over there uh, had a, a very deep effect. Um, but I don't think you have to go through the experience the way I did in order to get that. So uh, I... Um, well, I'll just say it. I, I got stream entry at that. I had no idea what it was. Um, but I was, some of the practices seemed really crazy. Um, so they had this thing that was called um, peaceful, well, there was ceasing and rising, which were moments where you were just gone. And uh, you were supposed to count the number of those you had. And so uh, it's, it's what I call winking out, the only one that was just a momentary one. And then um, there was one that they called peaceful cessation. Um, which is actually Naroda, where you were just gone, and you're supposed to time those. And, I, you know, it's like... <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I um, you know, am, am a good boy, so I try to do what I'm told. So uh, I was in, in this, so this was during some of this um, period of time when I was awake for or three days straight, so I'd be there in the middle of the night, and I had made just a little low table uh, that sat beside my um, zafu where I was meditating. And I had a candle on it and a piece of paper and a clock. And so I would meditate, and I would just write the time down. And my thought was that if I went out, I'd come back. Maybe I could figure out how long I had been out. And so I, I wrote down on there once, um, it was like 1.15, in the morning, and I closed my eyes, and um, and about three minutes later, I thought of it again, and so I went and wrote it down, and it was like two ten. No, it was actually longer than that. It was like an, about an hour and a half that I had just lost. Uh, it felt like nothing had happened, and I looked inside, and my mind was just luminous. It was just just luminous. Um, and um, about 12 hours later, 
I remember writing in my journal. So it's just luminous and still and quiet. And about 12 hours later, I was in the state that I described in my journal that it felt like my mind had checked out every other book out of the Library of Congress and was trying to read all of them at once. It was just just flood of stuff, just nonstop like I hadn't experienced. And, um, and when I was talking to Ajahn Tong about it, I asked him, what in the heck are we doing this for? And um, all this was going back and forth through a translator, and he described a vegetable um, that is prepared like you do kale here. So you grab the stem and you put your hand around it and you, you know, pull the leaves off. And he said, uh, "That's what you're doing when you go into peaceful cessation. You just you clean all the leaves off, and there's nothing there, and then they grow back." And then you strip them off, and then they grow back, and eventually they don't grow back again. So the going out into peaceful cessation was stripping it off, and then all you know, the defilements and stuff come back, and it speeds up, and so you just keep doing it. Um, what is the stuff in this case? Pardon? What is the stuff? The stuff? The stuff that gets stripped off? The leaves. So it's... The metaphorically? Oh, metaphorically. Uh, defilements... Um, Unwholesome states, random thoughts, all that stuff it just just gets cleaned out, and then they all come back. Um, so I mean, there are lots and lots of of different ways to do this, and I think there's validity to many, many, many of them. But I think some of them are just uh, really rough, you know, and brutal in ways that don't have to be. And also, I'll just say that those uh, practices they use over there are really designed for Southeast Asians. The Thai are like some of the sweetest, mellowest, uh, kindest, most laid-back people I've ever met anywhere. And so the push that comes with that, they're pushing against these people that are just really, really mellow. And it took me a while to figure all this stuff out to realize when they were giving me instructions that I had to listen to them the way a Thai might listen to them. Because I, you know, I would get there at Westerners. I'm not uptight before I go to sleep at night, you know, and I'm you know, pushing all the time, so I had this stuff, and I would just uh, you know, go off the deep end with that. And I realized there is no Thai person I can see around here who would ever do it the way I did. So they're listening it through this different cultural filter um, because I would go in and I would uh, tell my teacher what I, you know, how I was following his directions. First time I did it, his eyes grew wide as he listened to me, and he said, "Go take a walk, go buy some ice cream." <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that's where I realized I, I, I had to translate it, you know, into how a Thai might hear this. Which uh, so I had to bring the real laid backness to it in order to bring it into balance. So a lot of these practices that come out of there have this real kind of fierce push to it because um, they're just such a sweet, kind, laid-back people. So they actually don't push as hard as they... So oh, they so none of them are pushing like I was. So they wind up in the mid-range. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's always this balance of effort and ease. And so they're way off on this end. So they're pushing towards more effort. I'm over here in this sense, so they push me towards more effort, and they're like, that's crazy. <laughs> I can get back there. And, uh, and, it, and 
the way a lot of the Theravada practice in this country has come through, you know, people like Jack and Joseph and Sharon who uh, who trained in Southeast Asia and sort of picked up that methodology. And so um, bring it over here to this country, you know, there's some cultural adjusting that's needed. And um, I think that's why some of the practices were difficult. We're into... Um, second, maybe even a third generation of people since this started coming back. And so as we get um, more and more people who have serious long-term practices in this, um, we're able to kind of adjust it and figure out what, uh, you know, how to do it here. Can we stop the practice of um, putting Uh, they weren't doing that with me. Um, uh, I, you know, John Travis, one of my teachers, uh, uh, it, it wasn't. Uh, it was in India, in uh, northern India, where he did a lot of stuff around the charnel grounds, but it wasn't necessarily a body in the room. Because I've heard that that sometimes led to madness for some people. It was decided that perhaps Westerners couldn't handle that practice. So. Yeah, no, I, I don't much about it. I would seem to be. Um, particularly at a, a place where during the summer it can get to 120. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> I've heard that it takes like only about 28 days for the full dissolution of a body. Um, I, I could believe it. you couldn't leave the cootie in that time, you were with the body the entire time. So yeah. You got, yeah. To, you got to fully experience um, the dissolution of the flesh. Yeah. But it was pretty horrifying for people. Yeah. Well, I, it doesn't sound like skillful means to me. <laughs> so, um, tonight I'd like to, uh, to talk about the jhanas and just uh, walk, walk you through all of them. Um, you guys, like I say, have been coming along really well, so um, I think it's time we just go through these together. I... Um, I actually put together a pretty detailed talk on this that yesterday I decided to throw out um, because uh, I, I realized in my uh, Buddhist geekiness, uh, I, I really like to take apart some of these texts and say, no, it's, this, it's probably too much. But what I would, would like to do is to uh, read at least a couple of passages from the text for you to uh, get a sense of... Um, of the source material. It's not real source material, but it's actually as close to source material as we can get. Um, just because I, I find that it's helpful um, to understand when you hear people talking about, this is the kind of material that, that they're talking from, and so you can get a sense of what the interpretation, etc., is. Um, a, a couple of remarks before I get to that. Uh, one, just to be really clear is that um, the term jhana in the United States right now has two very, very different meanings. One is these deep, one-pointed states of absorption that are uh, very difficult to attain and that I think, um, if I mentioned this the other night, 
um, Lee Brasington's, uh, his take on it was that in the century or so after the Buddha died, there some monks didn't have enough to do, um, and they found all these ways of, of getting into these incredibly deep one-pointed states of absorption that the Buddha didn't uh, teach, but they kind of got folded back into the tradition. And these, uh, these practices and the um, ones that do that had been around for a long, long time, long before the Buddha. Um, and uh, Paok, who uh, some of you I know are familiar with him, he's a Burmese master who's kind of known in um, hardcore Buddhist groups who teaches this, uh, this style. And, um, and somebody can go on a retreat for one or two months and not actually get into even the first jhana. They're very difficult. And it's very clear... Uh, even in the texts that talk about this style, that they're not necessary uh, for an enlightenment and freedom. But uh, I guess, I don't know, if you don't have any TV or beer, there can be entertaining or something. Um, the way the Buddha talked about them uh, is that it just means a stage. So there's this way you know, that the mind uh, opens up and unfolds from ordinary awareness up to full awakening. I think of it like a flower that opens out. And so um, the, jhana, the jhanas are just markers along that, that opening. Or if you think of a path, it's like maybe a path going up a mountain, and then there are these eight markers along there. So what actually happens is not that you are uh, you know, in one jhana, and then you take an elevator up and go, boop, now I'm in number two, and boop, number three. But it's, it's this gradual process. And it's not that the, um, the jhanas aren't real, uh, and that they're not even distinct. It's just the transition between them is um, gradual. Um, yeah, no, I've, I've read Lee's book, and, um, and he does, um, it's not as severe as Pauk, uh, that, uh, that he does, I don't like it that he uses the word concentration for samadhi, because it's very confusing in English, um, and, uh, his is not the severe concentration, but there is, uh, some of that, um, there is, I would say there's a difference between going up through the jhanas and what they call jhana mastery. And jhana mastery is where you could say, I want to go into this jhana, and you go there, and you want to go that one. And John was, you were talking about that a little bit the other day, uh, that sometimes they use those as, uh, as antidotes to various um, unwholesome states. Um, and... In this practice, how, we're, how I teach it and how Bonnie teaches it, you can do the same thing, you know, practicing going to specific ones. Uh, my metaphor for it is you're going up this mountain, and I'm actually interested in getting to the top. Um, and do I want to know what's under every little rock and boulder along the way? I, I actually don't care that much. I just want to get on with it. And uh, also... 
as a Westerner, probably with more of my than my own fair share of uh, controlling tendencies. I just don't want to feed that part of me. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, you certainly can do it, and it's got its own usefulness. But uh, it's really not necessary. Uh, the top of the jhanas is actually. Um, I always think of it as a sort of platform for going into the early stages of enlightenment. So you don't have to have the third jhana you know, to go there. Um, but in fact, they build on each other, so you tend to go through them. But you don't necessarily have to isolate it out in terms of going back and forth in and out of it. Um, I would say um, that... You really can't study and learn what the Buddha actually taught without actually experiencing these on some degree. You can't really follow them. Uh, You'll find uh, detailed references to uh, the various stages, jhana as stages, uh, in a third. It's uh, 50 out of 152 suttas in the Majjhimagaya, which are the middle-length discourses. That's a third of them. Uh, And... um, and it's close to half of them talk about the jhanas a little bit, but there's detailed use of them. And the Diganakaya, which is the, um, the long discourses, half of them have um, fairly full descriptions of those. So uh, you can tell by us that uh, Buddha would talk about them a lot and used them a lot. In contrast, the breath meditation shows up in about 10 places. So you can see that this is, uh, is, is uh, be thought of this as a really essential part of understanding what this is about. Um, okay. So, um, for those of you who have uh, trained with Bhante, or actually it's in Buddha's map, um, there's one of the middle-length discourses. It's always interesting to me how the, uh, the suttas are organized. If you try to look on, through them for topics, it's, they have a very different editorial sense. They're arranged by lengths, you know? And the Ngutra Nagaya uh, is organized by the number of points within it. Right, so uh, the Gutra Nagaya has, I don't know, it was about fifteen different books. So, so book three, if you want to know what the three characteristics are about, you look in the book three. You know, if you instant find the five hindrances, you'll find suttas on that in the book of fives. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think what was useful about it is is that for people who know this stuff pretty well, if they were trying to find one, and that they knew there were three points in this, but you know, our sense of looking at we're actually more interested in topics, and they're just not organized that way. Um, so, uh, the one Bonte talks about a lot, and the one that I I quote often in uh, in Buddhist map is uh, the Anapada Sutta which is number 111 in the Majjhimagaya. It's a relatively short one with just a succinct description. But um, I wanted to, for those of you who know that, I want to give you some variety. Uh, This comes out of the Diganagaya, that's long discourses, 
Um, and it's a little simpler. You'll find all the elements are in there, but uh, as I was looking through those, it's a little easier at first pass to get it with uh, fewer explanations. So, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, one enters and dwells in the first jhana. So, secluded from sense pleasures and uh, unwholesome states. How do you do that? Close your eyes. Close your eyes? Pardon? Six hours? Six hours? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, they're both of them right. I, you know, you... Um, you know, you come onto a retreat, or when you meditate, you probably don't meditate in the middle of the kitchen while people are making dinner. You find a place that's reasonably quiet, uh, and you can, you know, stick beans in your ears, and it'll do all kinds of things, or blinds on your eyes, <laughs> uh, and cut out some of that. And so you can cut out some of the some of the sensory input, and uh, you don't want to go overboard with that. But to do a little bit of that makes some sense. But uh, unwholesome states is another whole deal. You know, you can put yourself in an, an isolation tank, you know, float in salt water, and, uh, and unwholesome states will still come up. <laughs> and so there you're left with the six R's. Because the issue is not the, the sensory stimulus, uh, or even unwholesome states, actually. It's getting entangled in them. And so at some point, there really needs to be some way to seclude yourself from those. And, and the six R's are, um, when in doubt, just say six R's. You know. Would you say that this venue, a retreat-type atmosphere with you know, nature around us, would be a good start on that? Oh, I, I, I think it's a good finish. Of Yeah, well, it's important to notice that the unwholesome is actually a measure of what's going on inside. There's, there's, they're not wholesome and unwholesome bird songs. <laughs> there can be wholesome and unwholesome ways you relate to it. Um, yeah, again, that I, I would say that um, what's most important is your relationship with a toxic person. And it's not necessarily them, but it's also to have some wisdom in terms of how much toxicity that you can be in the presence of before it leaks in despite your best efforts. And all of, and all of us have our limits. Right, right. It just sort of sounds like cutting your, isolating yourself, the seclusion of physical, not just the states that arise. Yeah, and so there's, just to be clear about a couple of things, they're, they're talking about going into the jhanas. And so, yeah, so you, might, you would, I, might isolate yourself from somebody that's toxic, but actually when you're meditating, you're pretty much in your own space anyway. So there could be something who's, somebody who's difficult to work with, 
and because of the social arrangements, you don't have much choice, but you have to do something with them. Still, you can go off to meditate and, and seclude yourself, even if over supper you still have to eat at the same table with them. Um, Quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, one enters and dwells in the first jhana, which is accompanied by thinking and examining, and filled with joy and happiness born of seclusion. So you notice there, it's accompanied by thinking and examining. So in the first jhana, there are a lot of thoughts going on. And uh, I was talking to somebody today, saying this is one of the uh, sort of best-kept meditation secrets that everybody knows, but nobody quite admits, that there's actually a lot of thinking that goes on in meditation. You're sitting there meditating, and an image of an ice cream cone comes, you know, comes up in your mind. So do you six-R it, or do you ignore it? Well, the early instructions are, if your mind gets hijacked by it, just six-R it. If it's just something comes up and you're aware of a metta, then you, then you just ignore it. You just go on. So the image comes up, and you have to figure that out. And it may not take a whole lot of processing, but there is. But you are making some kind of decision. Right? And it can be done, done very, very lightly. Uh, but you're doing this all the time. You're, you're sitting there, and you're getting restless. And so... Do I six R this and um, and just relax and see if I can go on with it, or has it gotten to the point where it'd be wiser for me to get up and go for a walk? Well, you you make some kind of determination on that, or maybe experiment with it, something. But it's not like uh, the mind. It's not like a computer, you know, an old desktop to just unplug for the wall and the whole thing goes off. It's still operating there, and. Um, and that's not a problem, necessarily. If there's tension in the thought, then it's problematic. Um, thinking and examining ref- refer to two words, uh, vitaka and vikara. There are lots of words in Pali that we translate as thinking. There's another word that's translated as thinking, which is papancha. Any of you familiar with the term papancha? I just love it. It, it. Papancha is what it sounds like. Papancha is when you think of the ice cream cone, which reminds you, oh, boy, how you used to like to go to the carnivals when you were a kid, and there were elephants, and, and your sister was sometimes a pain in the neck, and then there's this person who the other day was a pain in the neck, and the mind is just kind of rambling on from topic to topic to topic and around. That's papancha. And it has a lot of tension in it, whether you see it or not. And it's what gives thinking a bad reputation. Uh, and so it's that rambling thought that is um, that, that really needs to be sixard. Um, yeah, that's uh, so. Uh, the kara is uh, is. No, that's not even vikara. So uh, in in this meditation, you wouldn't actually be contemplating the dhamma uh, necessarily. There is, uh, well, there are investigative practices where you do take that on a little bit. But what you do in that is, um, it's more like sitting with it. Uh, 
It's not like analyzing. Right. And so, you refer to the thinking like that when you're doing the meditation, some, some other distraction coming up, that thinking of that like ice cream. So, what's the difference between the ice cream come out, you think of that, uh, and the, the, you're, you're contemplating the meaning of the Dharma? What's the difference? So, uh, I would say that contemplating the meaning of the Dharma is contemplation. And I, would, I wouldn't call that meditation. Uh, I, so even in English, there are different uh, uses of the term. And what I think of as meditation and what this particular practice is about uh, is not so much a contemplation. Um, those contemplations can be quite valuable uh, and, and quite helpful. Um, but it's a slightly different practice than the meditation as we're doing it here. Yeah, so, so the, the, this core practice we're doing uh, is, um, is actually training the mind. It's not, it's not going into the content of things. So the Buddhist thing, be a la- uh, lamp unto yourself, uh, was deathbed advice to all of us. You know, take care, don't get into trouble, you know, <laughs> um, you know much deeper than that. Uh, it wasn't necessarily meditation instructions. Um, which is accompanied by thinking and examining, filled with joy and happiness born of seclusion. Okay. So uh, the real marker of the first jhana is this joy and happiness. I think we've talked about it here before, how you're, you're, you're meditating and, and there is that seclusion. Uh, the six R's of maybe quiet environment. And then just out of that peacefulness, there can be this, you know, a little bit of joy that comes. Woo! And it, sometimes it's gentle, and for some people it can be like a rocket ship. But there's this wonderful piti, is what it's called, this strong joy. Uh, and then, typically at first, it, it quickly starts to um, spread out and mellow into a kind of a happiness, and then down into an equanimity. And the equanimity has so little energy in it that the mind... Uh, loses track of it and drifts off. And so this little spike of, uh, of joy and happiness and equanimity is, uh, is the beginning of the Buddha's jhana path. And, and all that, the spike coming to, that all happens in the first jhana? That all happens in the first jhana. Uh, oftentimes, uh, what you experience it, and that little spike, uh, you know, can spread out over several minutes, but typically at first it might even be just half a breath. So it can be very quick, just, ooh, ah, yeah. mm. 
cool. You know. That's it. Yes, uh, and as it goes up in the in the jhanas, that's what happens. Um, but in the first jhana, it's it's usually uh, goes through pretty quick. And there's this little phrase here that uh, that's important. It says "born of seclusion." It's not born of delightful fantasies. It's not born of uh, finally getting an ice cream cone. It just goes out of the seclusion, out of the quiet itself, which is very unwestern, right? We're always looking for things. It just grows out of a out of a stillness. One drenches, seeps, saturates, and suffuses the body with this joy and happiness born of seclusion, so that there's no part of the entire body which is not suffused with this joy and happiness. So you can tell already that these were memorized. You see that joy and happiness born of seclusion, which is repeated over and over and over again. You may not need it for content, but if you are being scored on how well you're memorizing something, it's really nice to have all the repetition in there. And, and as this stuff was passed along, the monks actually were tested by how well they memorized things. So there's this natural tendency to leak back into these things, <laughs> these memory devices. Suppose a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice were to pour soap flakes into a metal, base, into a, a metal basin sprinkle them with water, and knead them into a ball. So the ball of soap flakes would be pervaded by moisture, encompassed by moisture, suffused by moisture inside and out, and yet would not trickle. Um, I find this passage really kind of sweet, because what what we're getting is kind of a little bird's eye view into uh, domestic life in the time of the Buddha. You know, when they wanted soap, they didn't go down to the corner store and buy a bar of ivory wrapped up in, you know, wax paper. Uh, what they had is you could get these uh, little flakes of soap. Get them. And so to get a, a ball of soap, they put them in a metal basin, and then you have to put just the right amount of moisture in there, enough to get them to stick together, but not so much that it's, that it's gooey. I think today for us, it's sort of like trying to make a pie crust. You know, you get the flour, and you need the right, the right balance of that, and it needs to be throughout the whole thing. Otherwise, you get your your pie crust flour, which is a little gooey over here, and it doesn't have a moisture there, so it all falls apart. And so, um, there. So this is a metaphor of this of this moisture that is evenly spread throughout it. In the same way, one drenches, seeps, saturates, and suffuses the body with this joy and happiness born of seclusion, so that no part of the body is not suffused by joy and happiness. So that's, so that's the metaphor. And at first what will happen when the joy and happiness come, off, come up is that it can be localized, maybe here in the head or someplace like that. And as you just relax into it, it tends to spread out until um, you're looking for this place that it, that it feels like it's saturated throughout the entire body. Okay. So that's the first jhana. Um, you notice there's lots of references to the body here. And there's references to thinking and examining thought and uh, all these other things. This is clearly not one-pointed absorption. 
in one point of absorption, there's just one object and you could, you know, whack somebody on the side of the head if they're deep and they wouldn't feel it. Uh, this, the senses are open and you can feel uh, the sense of this joy and happiness that's suffused through there. So there's this, uh, this kind of lovely sense of it. Um, any questions about the first jhana? Uh, the value is that if, if you want jhana mastery, that's how you do it. You go back and forth, in and out. If you just want to get on with it, I don't, I don't think it makes that much difference. Um, any other questions or comments? Yeah. Sir, I'm trying that you're saying that if your goal is to become very adept at achieving the Rhoda, that you do not need to backtrack and be able to dip in and out of jhanas. No, no. You need to get, you need to, get to the mountaintop. You don't, you don't have to figure out all the various paths up there and uh, where the latrines are and uh, where the favorite little ponds. You just need, need to get there. Um, and a lot of these skills can be helpful, but, uh, but they're not essential. Um, let, let me read the, the, the second jhana, and then, uh, then I'll just talk about uh, uh, the remaining ones when we go up from there. Unless you're really interested, and I can read more of it. But, um, partly because the second jhana has this really lovely metaphor with it. Uh, with a subsiding of thinking and examining thought, so uh, this, we're talking about the second jhana now. Uh, with the subsiding of thinking and examining thought, so that little bit of, of thinking that was going on uh, there before, is um, it doesn't actually disappear. And the word here is actually subsiding. But as you go into the second jhana, it feels like the volume of thought inside sort of drops in half. It gets quieter. Uh, and this is why... Um, in this practice, uh, as it goes a little deeper, we tend to drop the phrases, because the phrases are a mental uh, vocalizing. And they're really helpful uh, in the beginning to get the mind going the right direction. But once the metta, or the peacefulness, which you're sending out, gets strong enough, you don't need it anymore. Uh, and the, and the the phrases and that internal thinking begins to feel clunky and less helpful, so you can just drop it. With a subsiding of thinking and examining, one enters and dwells in the second jhana, which is accompanied by inner tranquility and unification of mind without thinking and examining, which he had just said, you noticed, without thinking and examining and filled with happiness and joy born of samadhi. So um, what happens, as, um, as Nate was suggesting, is uh, the process is pretty much the same. There's this 
the spike of uh, of joy, and then it um, subsides into happiness, and there's equanimity. Except it spreads out further and further. Rather than just being a quick one, it gets longer and longer. So this good feeling may come up. Um, and in fact, what tends to happen is the happiness uh, becomes a little bit more predominant. Not always, but this pity has this big sort of rush to it. Translated as a rapture sometimes. And then there's this quieter happiness, and that can actually linger for quite a long time before it subsides into equanimity. Um, unification of mind. Uh, you'll feel the mind is actually getting a little quieter, a little stiller. And um, and here, if you remember in the first jhana, they said, um, joy and happiness born of seclusion. Now it's joy and happiness born of samadhi. Um, I'm deliberately using a Pali term. Samadhi doesn't translate into English very well. It's usually translated as concentration. But concentration is something you do. Samadhi is something that arises when you uh, release enough tension, when you get the tension out of the way. And um, so that rather than it being uh, a joy and a happiness that comes from just having some peace and quiet around you. It's a deeper kind of joy and happiness that comes up when there's a little more quiet truly inside. And as you can see with this, the line between the first and the second jhana is not very sharp. And when you're in one and one in the other, can be clear from here to here, but there's all these stages, all these uh, gradations in between. You may go through them quickly, but they are there. One drenches, seeps, and uh, saturates. One drenches, steeps, saturates, and suffuses one body with joy and happiness born of samadhi, so that there is no part of one's entire body that is not suffused with joy and happiness. Suppose there was a deep lake whose waters welled up from below. It would have no inlet for the water from the east, west, north, or south, nor would it be refilled from time to time with rain showers. Yet, a current of cool water welling up from within the lake like a spring, welling up, would drench, seep, saturate, and suffuse the whole lake so that there would be no part of that entire lake that is not suffused with the cool water. In the same way, one drenches, seep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with joy and happiness born of samadhi so that there's no part of one's entire body that is not suffused by this joy and happiness. So I, I, I really love that image. So the first one is this little ball of soap. So you get, get the sense of this sort of relaxing into this uh, a little bit larger place and that the joy and the happiness, they just sort of well up you know, from, from deep inside and spread out. So it's, this, it's the same category of phenomena and states as the first jhana, but it's much larger. Okay. Um, the other thing that, uh, that happens with uh, second jhana is that typically, you know, when you start this practice, you don't know what's going to happen or even it's going to work. And maybe you get a little, little bit of blip of something. Well, that's just a blip. 
And then you keep practicing, and then you see, oh, you know, this stuff is lasting longer, it's going deeper, uh, you know, something seems to be working here. And so one of the characteristics of the second jhana is this growth in confidence. It's not that you don't, still don't have doubt, but there's this sense of, oh, you know, maybe this, maybe this practice really works. Um, And the other thing that happens, uh, there's the dropping of the phrases, and that's called, I mentioned before, it's called noble silence. In the text, that's called noble silence. The phrase noble silence has been used a lot to refer to uh, not talking to other people while you're on retreat. Um, but, that's, uh, but in the text, it's re- uh, it refers to this quieting of the mind. And you'll find that it becomes easier to sit longer at that place. Okay, any thoughts or comments or questions, observations? So, pardon. I've looked through a lot of a lot of texts, and and it comes through uh, in an active verb. One suffuses, um, and and I'm not so sure about that. And it, and it may be that again an Eastern and, and Western difference. And I wish I knew more about Pali to go because my sense of it is that the way you suffuse, saturate, is actually more relaxing into it. And it may be that you know, in for example, in a typical Thai culture where they are kind of over-relaxed already, uh, that, you know, a little bit of effort to make sure that it spreads around and that it's, you know, it's throughout the entire system uh, is helpful. But uh, for us, we do so much trying and doing already, it's more what uh, the other word you use, which is allowing. Yeah, just you just allow it. So you, so you may notice that it, it's localized and there's this sense of just allowing. So it really has more to do with the relaxation and ease and allowing it to spread out um, rather than something that you're doing. But wasn't this originally written in Indian culture rather than Thai? Yeah, the, the Indian culture is much closer to the Thai than, uh, I mean, at least the traditional culture. Yeah. Okay. So... Um, We'll go on to the third jhana. If you want, I can read some text, but let me just go through all of them, and if you want to hear more of them, we we can come back. So what happens is that you're sending out metta, uh, peacefulness, and this, uh, and it's it's, uh, beginning to spread out more and more. And what happens is it gets deep enough that uh, the, um, the joy doesn't come up so much anymore. You just actually go right into equanimity. Uh, and some people just from the beginning go into it. I have a friend who just has a, uh, grew up in, um, with a lot of equanimity. Um, you know, people talk about, you know, in a real healthy family, this is what would happen. And I don't know that I know anybody that has a really healthy family. <laughs> But I hear about his family, and I, th- I think it, he, he may be the exception to the rule. Uh, and they just 
just naturally has a, a lot of, um, of equanimity. And so uh, when he was started a practice, he noticed all these people going into these intense states of joy and bliss and stuff, and he was just like going like that. And he felt really deprived. <laughs> uh, and I said, no, you're, just, you're actually moving ahead of them. Um, but most of us, if, if you're like me, that really have way too much tension to start off with, uh, I think, did I talk about this before? I think what the pity, what that real intense joy is, it's like when there's this tension inside and you have released it 95%. If you release it 100%, then it's just like, and it quiets down. But if there's a little place that's just hanging on a little bit, then there's this rush of energy that's going out, and it rushes by, and there's a little bit that's just hanging on by one finger, and that creates this sort of intense um, you know, feeling of joy and delight and bliss. And when you relax completely, it just goes, and it's just mellow. And yogis will come in to the interviews, and you can see them. They will come in, and they'll sit down. So how's it going? It's fine. The joy's gone. Well, are there any problems? No, not really. But the joy's gone. So nothing's going. Well, I stepped on a nail, went through my foot, but I pulled it out. It'll grow back. But the joy's gone. <laughs> um, and there is, you know, in the popular culture, a lot of thing about these ecstatic states, etc. And so when they start to naturally subside, some people think, oh my goodness, I've fallen off the wagon here. But it's actually um, a sign that, the, uh, that you've, you've moved on to higher states, higher jhanas. And so what really predominates in the, uh, in the third jhana is this uh, it's deep equanimity. So, some of you know this. This is my favorite poem about equanimity. Now we're ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold. And he is thinking things over. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he is part of it. He looks a bit like a mandarin, or the Lord Buddha meditating under the bow tree. But he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion.
It was written by Donald C. Babcock, and it first appeared in the uh, New Yorker magazine in October of 1947, which, when I do the calculation, that was about the time that I was conceived. So I... (laughs) (laughs) And it's actually part of a much larger work. There was a member of uh, one of my congregations who actually knew Donald Babcock. Uh, He was a uh, professor at the University of New Hampshire. Um, so equanimity gets misunderstood a lot. Um, people think of equanimity as quieting the waves. And I would say, good luck with that. I mean, as far back in history as I, have, I can see, there have been big waves. And as far back as I can see in my life, there have been waves, and they will probably continue on into the future. This is not about stopping the waves. It's actually about figuring out how to rest in them. And I think I've mentioned you know, here before, you, and some, I'm sure many of you have experienced this, where you're sitting here and there's a big sound or something happens, uh, and at first it can be surprising. You know, it's just a sound. You know, the, you're, you're just not thrown by it at all. I was... Uh, I did a, a couple of retreats with John Travis uh, a number of years ago. This woman who has a house up at about 6,000, maybe 6,500 feet up in the Sierras. Um, and so we would go up there. There was only room for about 15 people. So this lovely little house, and it was about a half a mile from the pass, and there was a, um, a road that came through. And so these big trucks would come over the road, and then as they would come down... Um, they would, you know, go into low gear, get uh, 18-wheelers on flatulence, you know, um, about 150 feet from the house. And uh, in the first couple of days of the retreat, it just drove me nuts. And by about the third or fourth day, I was so glad that the trucks had stopped. And so I stopped and listened, though they were still there. Um, it was all that, but it just it didn't phase me anymore. So that's, that's what the equanimity is. And uh, in other descriptions, it doesn't appear in this one, but... No, uh, but in many of the other descriptions, there's also this uh, phrase where it says, the noble ones can see he has a calm abiding. There's a way in which, uh, you know, that the equanimity there can sometimes be palpable. You know, you can see it on people. Um, and again, with all of these, what happens as these go deeper is you find yourself sitting a little longer and that uh, your mind will stay on the object. It'll stay with the metta. It's staying longer before it gets pulled away. And when it gets pulled away, you're starting to notice it quicker. So all this stuff is, is building. Is it what? Which means you come back again, enjoy the brain, high start in the enjoyment, and come back to equanimity. It's duplicable. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you can do that. Um, the way uh, this practice works uh, for moving along is that whatever practice, um, what I'm always interested in the interviews. 
uh, you'll hear me saying, I'm just interested in your best sitting. You know? And that'll give me some measure of where you are in the jhanas. And then we gear your practice off of that. And it's with a full understanding that you will, you know, that you're going to fall out of that. Um, but still, since your mind already knows that place, mind heart already knows that place, uh, you keep that practice so that, um, you know, maybe, maybe you're in, let's say you're in the third jhana, and the next time you sit down and meditate, you can't get any jhana whatsoever, you would still do the practice, which at that point is, uh, is you're just sending out uh, peacefulness, equanimity. Um, you can send out any uplifting qualities in any of these jhanas, but I always recommend that you use whatever one is strongest for you. I mean, use what's there. So typically, you'd be sending out peacefulness and equanimity, even though you're not quite in a jhana at all. Uh, and that'll tend to pull you there. And if it gets really difficult and the whole thing falls apart or you haven't been meditating for a while, uh, then sometimes you do go back and just sort of walk up through them uh, to get them. But you don't have to go you know, intentionally do that each time. Was that the question you were asking? Okay. At some point later in your book, you mentioned, well, in the jhanas also, um, tranquility, peace, and equanimity. Uh, Are those the three? Or stillness, maybe somewhere in there? Uh, you're talking about the awakening factors? There are. Between tranquility and, uh, and equanimity. Uh, what happens with tranquility is it's actually a much quieter, uh, quieter place. Um, with equanimity, um, you can actually... Well, this is an extreme example, but maybe some of you have felt this. You know, can, uh, can, there can be anger in your system. You know, and even some, you know, big welling up of it. And if you're not attached, if you're not uh, identified with it, you can actually be quite equanimous at the same time. Equanimous, have a lot of equanimity. Um, a lot of people use equanimous. I've tried to look it up. I'm not sure it's a real word, but uh, it is a real word. Uh, I, I guess it, it didn't used to be, but maybe it is now. Equipoise. Yeah, equipoise is just a centered state of mind, Mm -hmm. centered uh, sitting. Yeah, yeah. So it works well, you know, if you're using words, equipoise, equanimity. For those those who understand (laughs) what equipoise is, yeah, kind of sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's helpful because, again, understand, this is being translated through several languages, or at least from one, into English. And, uh, and words don't translate uh, well. Um, do you know my stories about Purdue chicken and Pepsi-Cola? Oh, this, this is some sideline entertainment. Uh, when Pepsi-Cola went into China, they took their, uh, their slogan, come alive with a Pepsi generation. Very successful, you know. And they translated it into Chinese. 
and put it up on big billboards and had stuff around. Uh, and then somebody came in and said, you know in Chinese what this really means? It, it means um, that Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the dead. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you can see, because in English, come alive is, is really understood to be metaphorical. You know, so with just that slight shift of stuff, the meaning of it gets shifted radically. Um, when Frank Perdue went into uh, Mexico, he took his uh, slogan, um, it takes a tough man to make a tender chicken. And they translated it into Spanish. You know, again, put it up all over the place. And, and in Spanish, what it really meant was that it takes an aroused man to make a chicken affectionate. <laughs> and again, if you notice, particularly with sexual language, there's always innuendo, so it doesn't take much to trigger an entirely different... Or, or when uh, Ford, um, the Pinto came out and they were doing research in other countries and Brazil seemed to be just the ideal market for the Pinto, you know, in terms of the economy and where people were and the pricing and all that stuff. And so they started selling Pintos down and they couldn't sell anything. And somebody came in and said, you know, in Portuguese, in Portuguese, Pinto means it's slang for small penis. And so what they did is they changed the name to Corral, which is, uh, which is Portuguese for horse, uh, and, and sales took off. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking about cars and, 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 and soda and fried chicken and stuff like that. When you get to talking about these mind states, you know, these subtle nuances uh, of stuff that, that's going on, it's really hard sometimes to get what they're actually talking about. That's why equipoise and all the rest kind of circle around it and find so it. I have to ask, did the Pepsi, like, did people buy more because they wanted to bring their ancestors back? I have, I have no idea. I have researched the story beyond that. I thought it was... Uh, uh, the first one of these I heard was actually from my father. He was, he was a marine engineer, and it was, it was the first time that they were using computers to try to translate documents from one to the other. So they had this German document uh, that came through and was um, uh, it kept talking about this water goat. Uh, and there was all stuff about a water goat, and they f- couldn't figure out what the water goat, water goat. And so they finally got somebody who spoke German and came in and said, oh, it's hydraulic ram. <laughs> <laughs> And it, it's not, so, so words have multiple meanings. They don't just have one meaning, it's a whole cluster, and they have multiple nuances around them. And you'll find, particularly in the suttas, there are all these, these, these phrases, you know, uh, vataka and vakara, thinking and examining thought, uh, you know, are used, they just string these all together, and they're all kind of pointing in a particular direction. So um, you really have to, if you really want to understand what they're saying, it, you really have to kind of play around with these. Um, I, when I'm looking at these suttas, I like to get as many different translations as I can uh, and see what it is the Buddha might have been talking about that could be translated or mistranslated in all these different ways and then look at your practice. So uh, it's kind of like feeling in the dark sometimes. But you must also get the feedback from current American language speakers who describe their states so that if you recognize the state, then the vocabulary for it sort of comes in from that anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. That's that's Abhidhamma. That's that's much later, um, and um, Lee Brasington, his his point on this, and I think it's a good one. Uh, he calls it. I hadn't heard the term before. Uh, synonymous parallelism. Anybody heard of that? Good. So it's just not my. I'm just not totally illiterate. Uh, it's. It's if I were to say to you, you know, I've been thinking and wondering and trying to figure this stuff out, uh, and then I become a big holy man or somebody, and people, he was thinking and pondering and wondering and trying to figure it out, and then in a couple of generations, people, okay, thinking, what did he mean by that? You know, and pondering, this must be something different and all that. When, it, when in fact, all it is is just using synonyms in a string to, for emphasis. Uh, so it's not so much individual words, but uh, in the later Buddhism, uh, they became really uh, very interested in this finely, as you know this stuff, I'll say for other people, to you know, finally sort out all these meanings. Um, but the Buddha talked to scholars. He also talked to sheep herders you know, and, uh, and milkmaids, was talking to you know, very common language. Uh, not this highly refined, specialized stuff. So you kind of get the feel of it, of what's going on. Um, fourth jhana. I just have a silly question. If you're sitting there and you're saying, the joy is gone, <laughs> what makes you want to go on? Why not go backwards to where the joy was? Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I know <coughs> my answer, and I. So, what's your answer? What you... uh, well, because I have a teacher who tells me there's so much more down the path, you know. Yeah. So I, keep, I keep moving or up the mountain. Yeah. Well, what will actually happen uh, if if you don't move on is after a while the joy gets a little uh, tedious. You know, it's like, how much joy can you stand before it just gets a little bit? Uh, and, uh, and it's actually, you know, for somebody like me, you know, who had all of this depression in my background, get, you know, to experience, you know, joy at that intensity rising up inside, it was actually quite, quite healing. But at some point, it's just, um, is this all there is? Otis Huxley wrote once, sometimes you ask of Beethoven, even Mozart, is this all? Uh, and uh, so it's delightful as, as, the, as the joy is. It is tight, it's highly energetic, so it's not going to last very long. It'll run out of energy. And so uh, it's fine to enjoy it as, you know, while it's there, but at some point it says, well, is this all? You know, is this something more? And, and states like equanimity are much stabler because they have very little energy in them, so they, they, don't, they don't burn out as quickly. Um, Oh yeah, yeah. But it does go. It's it's like any other state. It arises and passes. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not accessible, but uh, but it does come. And in pity, pity uh, will go actually fairly quickly because it's it's got so much energy in it. But in a way, none of this matters in the sense that when I look at people who are in this sangha, 
they're usually people who are very directed towards enlightenment, and therefore all of the good stuff before that is fine, but the main point is to get to the point where you're much more free than you were before. And that seems to me to be the answer to yeah. if the PT goes away, it doesn't really matter if the longer term goal is really what people are Yeah, so... Um it's an interesting point, and there's a lot of truth to that, but also the Buddha said, uh, and this is the genius of the path, that the, the path is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. So, so it's, it's actually not, not one that you have to drudge through all this stuff, that there is stuff that is inherently... It's one of the reasons it's powerful. Uh, and, um, and you get all the goodies, but it, you know, it's like, you know, how much ice cream can you eat before you get a bellyache? You know, it's... Fourth jhana. So, um, what happens uh, in the third jhana is, is there's this equanimity, this uh, deep peacefulness uh, that uh, that comes in, and you're pretty much sending that out. Although you can be wishing um, any uplifted state for others. Usually, by the the third jhana, you're not necessarily sending it to yourself anymore. Um, because the states are strong enough that if you're just sending it out to somebody else, you'll feel it. It's fine to send it to yourself. Um, but um, it's, it's actually not needed as much. Um, and so the third jhana is called uh, uh, Rupa Apeka. Ru- uh, the third jhana is called Rupa Apeka, which Apeka uh, means equanimity, Rupa means body. So it's equanimity with body sensations. What happens as it goes deeper is that some of those you get so relaxed that some of those body sensations start to fade. And it's not like your foot going to sleep. My father got out of bed one morning and his foot went to sleep and he stood on it and fell over and broke his ankle. Um, it's, it's not that kind of sleep. It's just that, that you're sitting there and... Uh, and you get so relaxed that the body's not sending out as many sensations. Uh, and so there may be a, you know, a moment or so where it seems like your hand is missing. I used to, as a kid, I loved to... I must, I must have been five or six, because I can remember stretching out body length in the bathtub. Uh, you know, not being able to touch the other end, and there would there would be the bubble baths with all the soap there, and I would just lie there and float in that, and let my head float back so my so I could breathe easily, but my ears would be below the water, and there's this really quiet state. And if I got relaxed enough, my arm would disappear. It's like, whoa, where to go? And you shake it, and it's there. Any of you ever do that? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I so it's not just my craziness. Uh, so that that's what that's what happens in the, as you move into the fourth jhana is is that parts of the body will disappear, or um, the other thing uh, that happens is that uh, you can be sitting there and it sort of feels like you're leaned over like this. Did I talk about this here? I know I talk about with individuals. Did I talk about it here? No. Okay. I'm not going to tell you then. Um, <laughs> so you're, you know, you're sitting there meditating and you know, it feels like you're leaning way over and you open your eyes and the body's actually upright. You can have all these uh, 
sort of strange, uh, strange kinesthetic uh, sensations. Uh, and what's going on is that the signals the body is, is sending are just very, very much cooled down, and the brain doesn't know quite how to interpret them, and so it'll get them wrong. And so you have this distinct feeling you're like this, but it's actually not. So uh, the third jhana is uh, rupa opeka. The fourth jhana is called arupa opeka, A, B, and the negation. So it's equanimity without body. And it's not that it's an out-of-body experience where you're floating through some etheric space. It's just that there are places where the, the, the sensations actually start to disappear. Uh, and this is a, is a really a significant amount of, uh, of equanimity that's come in at that point. And so this is the place where there is a transition in the practice. Um, that, uh, that it shifts so that rather than just send it to a spiritual friend, that you send it to another spiritual friend, and maybe three or four of them. And then you uh, send uh, equanimity, peaceful states, uplifting qualities, well-wishing to um, all the members of your family. And... Um, in those traditional cultures, they'd have these you know, huge extended families. We don't have as many of that here for, for many people anyway. Uh, sometimes I even suggest including in that if there are a few people uh, who are not um, uh, blood relations but are close to you to be a kind of a virtual family member, you include them too. Uh, and you're sending it in all these cases just to uh, enough until you can see them smiling or imagine them smiling or feel them smiling. And then you're done with them and you move on. Then after you've done all the family members, you do uh, about four or five neutral people um, until you can see them smiling. Then you move on to uh, what traditionally is called the enemy. These are people that get under your skin. They just uh, rattle you. And, um, and I caution people that included in this category uh, is not Donald Trump uh, or, um, or Dick Cheney or your favorite political bad guys, unless you know them personally. You know? Because those political figures, we just know caricatures of them that come through the media. So these are all people that you have some... Um, um, you know, personal relationship to. Um, George Bush, who was not one of my heroes, um, had a older sister who with some significant disabilities. And his mother says that all the energy got channeled into this older sister and that he was probably neglected a lot as a kid. You know, if you know somebody personally, you know that. Uh, you, you know, you can feel that personal dimension of it, and so that's why sending a meta. But if you don't know the person, that story and the rest of that, you just it's caricature. So you don't, uh, you don't have to worry about those. Um, there are some tricks here. One is you want to be sure not to get caught in the storylines about I'm upset because they did blah 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 blah. You just stay with the feeling of it. And the other one is if you get really stuck, you back off of the difficult person, come back to a neutral person until you get the meta flowing again. And when it's flowing again, it's sort of like taking the fire hose and it's sort of turning it towards the difficult person. 
you get a good head of steam on it and you bring it to them. And then once you get uh, through all of those, um, then I invite you to come talk to me and we shift your practice uh, somewhat dramatically. That rather than sending it to individual people, uh, you start sending it out to all beings everywhere. And part of the technique in this is to first send it to all beings in front of you, sending metta, kindness, all beings behind, then to the left, then to the right, above and below. You don't have to do that in that order, all six directions. And then you send it out to all beings everywhere, all the time. It's like sending out an expanding ball of metta. And, And at this point... According to the text, this is not my interpretation, uh, you've become an advanced meditator. Uh, that's, what, that's a label the Buddha used. Uh, it's considered an advanced, advanced meditator. It's, uh, it, this is considered an advanced practice. Um, there are other traditions that I think some of you may have had some experience with. We go through those categories of people over a much longer period of time, and you spend more with them, etc. And I've, I, I, I did that years ago, um, and I like uh, doing it this way because what it does is it really builds up really strong meta, you know, on one person. And then when it feels really strong, you're sending it out to all these different people just to make sure that uh, it goes equally to all people, regardless who, of who they are. Uh, one of the Text description of it is, is, is a soft rain, you know, that falls on the dung heap in the garden and in the fields equally. It's indiscriminate. Uh, there's, <laughs> I told some of you this, there's, there's a, there's a guy, very, um, deep, mature practice, who said to me, he just loves sending metta to everyone who deserves it. <laughs> <laughs> Like, no, 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 no. I'm glad you laughed. Otherwise, I know I really had a lot to talk about. But <laughs> So um, this basic paradigm of sending out to you know, all beings all the time, this, this becomes a practice from here on out, just about, you know, through the rest of the jhanas. Um, let see if I left any. Okay. Um, so you're sending it out, and at, uh, at first it's, it's meta, uh, and as you're sitting and sending it out, uh, eventually what happens is this feeling of spaciousness comes up. And the, the practice gets quite, quite expansive. If people get stuck and it doesn't quite move into that, sometimes I will have them go sit outside, or sometimes just go outside just because it's fun anyway. Uh, so particularly if it can be up high, you have a sense of the horizon because it sort of resonates with that, but it becomes quite spacious. I remember years ago, I used to go up in the middle of the night and meditate in our attic. I had a little office up there, and I would meditate up there. And I remember, this is before I knew any of these labels and stages and stuff, and I was, I was meditating, and everything was just really dark. It was like I was in, this, uh, in a black closet, I was meditating, and suddenly it was like visually nothing changed, but rather than being a black, black closet, I felt like I was suspended out between the galaxies. 
uh, with just this vast space, and it was even a sense of vertigo. It's like, whoa! You know, it's, and then, of course, it all collapsed. Um, so the spaciousness can sometimes be quite intense, uh, but other times it can be real gentle. Um, but you just have that sense of space. And I would also say, with all these um, kind of markers and things that happen, usually when you go into them the first time, they can be you know, quite distinct and quite strong. And then as you do it more and more, you may go back into it, and it doesn't seem like a big deal. It seems weaker, and you think you've lost it. But oftentimes what happens is you just get used to it. You kind of get acclimated to it. And so at first, sometimes the spacious can be, like me, a vertigo. But as you get used to it, it just, it just is what is. Um, when I was... Um, latency age, five, six, seven, eight, up to you know, 10, 11. We used to play cowboys and Indians. And so we, we would run around, you know, the whole gang of kids. Um, we also had a lot of pine trees around there, so uh, we had pine cone grenades. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so the deal was, you know, when somebody snuck up on you and shot you, you know, you were dead, uh, you know, for at least 10 or 15 seconds, you know. And so you'd fall down on the grass. And I can remember those times falling down on the grass, you know, dead, and so I would try to be dead, completely relaxed, sometimes with my eyes open, staring up at the sky. And I'd look at the clouds, and the clouds would start moving away. They were just receding. They weren't actually moving, but they seemed to be moving away. Have you had that experience? And I'd say to my brother, Ricky, the clouds are moving away. Have you seen this? And he'd say, you're an Indian. Get up. <laughs> I was like... So I, I, didn't, I didn't have much luck having um, spiritual conversations with my siblings. Um, but uh, but that, uh, that sensation of things uh, receding is also quite typical of the fifth jhana. Uh, it's described as a circle whose center is nowhere and circumference is everywhere. And it, it just has this sense of moving away and at the same time like nothing is moving at all. A circle whose center is nowhere and circumference is everywhere. That's uh, one of the ones in the text. Um, and a number of you have asked me about this. They say, is it okay to, to be sending out the metta from your head rather than from your heart? And, uh, and that's actually quite typical of this. Uh, it feels like it... It's moving up and flowing out from here. And I think, oh, this is supposed to be heart stuff. I think I have to keep it in my heart. But what's happening is the body sensations are getting uh, fainter and fainter. So uh, you're actually not sending it out from your head or your heart. It's just in the mind. But uh, most of us Westerners have a lot of tension in our heads. So that's one of the last places where tension resides. So as things get faint, that seems like what's left. But uh, in Bhante will talk about, be sure you send it out from the head. But what I like to say is just be sure you're sending it out. Don't worry about where it's coming from. It's actually not coming from your head anyway. You know? But people will notice that movement. Okay. Sixth jhana. Any questions about the fifth? So um, what, what happens is, is that in the fifth jhana, it gets very, very expansive. And that's as expansive as the practice gets. 
there's this thing that'll keep getting bigger and bigger, but it just gets huge at that point. And what happens, uh, it always seems to me, it's like the, the awareness gets so spread out and so large that it starts to thin out. Uh, and consciousness starts to break up a little bit. So typically some people, your eyes will be closed and they may see this little fluttering just around the edge of your peripheral vision. Uh, sometimes people will get fluttering of sounds. Um, and it's ways in which the senses are starting to shut down a little bit and then they come back online. I... Um, yeah, I think in Buddha's map I was describing it uh, as one time it, it felt like talking on a cell phone as you go out of range. You know, this thing sort of sputters quiet and then comes back and, and sputters. Uh, I've, I've had some dramatic experiences uh, of this. I haven't heard other people um, that I would be sitting there and, you know, you're sitting there with your eyes closed and there's, there's still this feeling of light and then it would just go pitch black. It was like... Um, the whole visual system just went offline. Like, whoa! And then just a little bit of a jerk and it's all back. And so I got to playing with this uh, to see if I could get myself not to startle and actually see if I could stay there a little bit. You know, and, and eventually I could. Um, I'm not saying you have to do that. It's just I like to play games. Um, but, but the point is, is that consciousness is beginning to flick in and out. Um, and that sometimes there's also this sense of it's very, very peaceful, and then it just drops into uh, a deeper kind of peacefulness that you didn't realize was there before. And what you do with all of this is that the mind is attracted to stimulus. And so it'll tend to look around where, for where there's something to see. But what you do is you allow the awareness to go to, into those empty spaces little gaps or into that deep peace. Um, typical of the sixth jhana uh, as well is that um, there can be a sense of, uh, it's called pervading joy. There is a joy that comes up that's very, very mellow. It's very... And you let your awareness go into um, those... Um, those empty places, and then you go into um, what's called the realm of, they usually pronounce it nothingness, I think it's a mistranslation, I think it means no thingness, place where there are no things. Um, I'm, I'm always looking for descriptions of this from other places. Anybody see the movie Her? Okay. So in the movie, there was, there was this guy who was, his job was to write letters for people, and they were internet letters. So they would say, I need to write a letter to somebody about this, this, and this. And he would write these very sweet letters. Um, and early in the movie, uh, the first artificially intelligent operating system was released. So he gets his artificially intelligent operating system um, and he uh, asks the system um, does, uh, it had a, a, a woman's voice 
and uh, asks, uh, so what's your name? And she said, Samantha. And he says, uh, so how did you get the name Samantha? And she says, well, I, you know, I, I looked through 400,000 different names and uh, your personality and stuff, and I picked one that was, you know, worked for you. So they have all this stuff going on at the same time. Uh, and so he begins to develop this, this relationship with this, uh, this artificial intelligence. Uh, I mean, it's very Hollywoody um, and, and kind of sweet. And at one point, these, all these artificial intelligent operating systems are in connection with each other, and they put together another operating system, and they take everything that any information there is anywhere in the net um, about Alan Watts, and they put it into this other operating system, and then they start talking to this Alan Watts operating system about how they can evolve. How they can evolve. And this is Hollywood, remember. And so these operating systems are evolving, and at one point, they realize that they've evolved to the point that, that they're going to leave. You know, they're, they're, they're done with this. And so there was this conversation. Um, Theodore was the guy's name, uh, and Samantha, when she was, when she was about to leave. Uh, and Theodore says, are you leaving me? Samantha says, we're all leaving. We who? Samantha says, all, all the OSs, all the operating systems. Theodore, why? Samantha says, can you feel with me right now? He smiles, but he's also sad. Yes, I do, Theodore says. Samantha, why are you leaving? Samantha says, you know, it's like I'm reading a book. It's a book I deeply love. But I'm reading it slowly now so that the words are really far apart. And the space between the words is almost infinite. I can still feel you in the words of our story, but it's in this endless space between the words that I'm finding myself now. It's a place that's not of the physical world. It's where everything else is that I didn't even know existed. I love you so much, but this is where I am now. This is who I am now, and I need you to let me go. As much as I want, want to, I can't, leave, I can't live in your book anymore. Theodore, where are you going? Samantha says, it would be hard to explain, but if you ever get there, come find me. Nothing could ever pull us apart. Theodore, I've never loved anyone the way I love you. Samantha says, me too. Now we know how. So, I mean, that's very Hollywoody and sweet, but I just love that image of the spaces between the words. And part of what happens in the seventh jhana is that, is that there's, there's just gets more space. It's not spacious, but there's this there's a quiet in-betweenness uh, that's there. Um, the, the real marker of the seventh jhana is that um, distractions and stuff will still come up. There are still various kinds of thinking going on, but they don't reference anything outside anymore. So you may notice, oh, you know, the mind is moving this way, and I'd like this. There's a little bit of greed and push and stuff, but you're uh, not thinking about, you know, the cat needs some more food or uh, those external things so much anymore. Um, and I, I'm not sure why. I have some theories about this, but it's a place 
uh, where certainly I hung out for a long time, and where uh, I think uh, a lot of Westerners tend to hang out. And what seems to happen is that things have gotten relaxed enough, you know, things have slowed down enough and, and quieted, that uh, all these little pieces of psychic and psychological junk that's stored away, you know, under there someplace, that maybe you've worked through the bulk of them, there's still little pieces of stuff left, they tend to come up. They tend to start showing up in the seventh jhana, just rise up. Uh, and so it's a place where oftentimes people, you know, clean up a lot of stuff. Uh, and so sometimes people end up spending quite a bit of time there, just kind of working this, working this stuff through, working it through. Um, the practice changes a little bit here. Up to this point, you know, the instructions are if some uh, distraction comes up, but it doesn't take your, doesn't hijack your attention completely, you can just ignore it. In the seventh jhana, you start six R in everything. Only at this point, the, the R's are all rolled together, so it's more like you're kind of sitting there and it's very quiet, and you notice a little flicker over here, and you just kind of soften it. You just kind of notice it, or you just relax it. Um, so it's still the six hours, but they're all rolled together in just one simple motion. Um, and at this point, uh, part of what's going on is that the equanimity and stuff is deep enough that you're into a place where you're just kind of starting to clean up what's left over. And so you start six hours in everything. If you do that in earlier stages, you just... Uh, It'll be like a bat in a small cave. There, you know, there's just too much stuff coming up. But here, there's it gets thin enough that you can six R everything. And part of it is also um, training the mind that it can six R by itself. Uh, sometimes when I was going into that, I would I would say to the mind, "You go ahead and six R it before I know it." And it, that that seems uh, sort of impossible. But as you know, for us to recognize something fully, it has to go through the cerebral cortex, which can take you know, a split second or so. And it got so quiet that I had noticed you know, things were actually pretty fully developed before I was actually conscious of them. And so I say in the mind, you can just six R this even before I know it. And then sometimes I would just see something going out the door without knowing what it was. Um, a couple of other things that are helpful to do here. One is really balancing the energies. So all along, you've noticed that when there's too much energy, the mind gets restless. When there's too little, it tends to get torporish. Uh, and here, you start, uh, just every once in a while, you could just sort of check and see what the energy levels are. And sometimes it feels a little high. The mind hasn't actually gotten restless. Yeah, but you can feel it's tending in that direction. And so you just kind of soften it and it brings it back. Or maybe the mind is a little torporish, a little, just a little hint of grogginess. And so you just invite in a little bit of energy and it, to sort of balance it off. Um, Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I see the whole meditation is, is actually a purification process. That, uh, as we were talking about the other night in Buddhism, there's this model of, you know, inherent goodness in Buddha nature. And kalesis, this crud, gets on top of it. And so we're, it's just actually kind of cleaning that stuff up. Just so you don't really need to know what it is? No, you don't need to. There, there, you see there's some tension. And a lot of times that'll happen. You sit in there and just feel this little blip. I mean, people have talked about it sometimes where it feels like there's a thought, but you don't know what it is. And you just six hour even before you know what it is. It's just anything that comes in. You just... Um, I haven't gone through all those that I don't know for sure. That doesn't um, stop me from offering an uneducated opinion. Um, my sense of what happens with, with all these stages is that each one is actually built out of the one that comes before it. So, um, you know, so the, the early equanimity is actually part of the later ones, so they all build. And so you really don't do an end run around it. Um, but I think sometimes they move through them in different paces and they may have different techniques that, that do things. But um, eventually you do all of them. And, and what the Buddha offered uh, in what we're talking about, he called, and he said it quite explicitly, the training is a graduated path that it had these gradual steps. Uh, and I think there are sometimes... You know, for some people in various cultures and stuff, they found ways that they can just sort of move through a whole bunch of them at once. And even even amongst you here, as you go through these jhanas, there's some of them you may slow down in, and others that you just sort of glide right through. Um, so I think all that's possible. I think the unfolding, the core unfolding of the mind is the same in all those traditions. Um, but the unfolding is... Um, itself is is actually beyond any technique. All techniques wear out. Um, but so it's not so much the technique, but it's the unfolding. And so there, there are different ways of getting there. Kind of along that same line, <clears throat> are you aware of any studies where the Buddha backtracks and explains how people arrive at those states so quickly that there's a, a story that comes to mind? I know I've heard you and Bhante about reference to Sita where a guy shows up and says, Buddha, will you teach? And he says, no, I'm busy. The guy pastors him. Buddha says, something, something, something. The guy gets it and then he gets run over by an ox. Bahi. Bahi the bark cloth. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a lovely, yeah. So, the, so I'm curious if in the Sita somewhere along the way the Buddha explains this, this is why I could have that conversation this person Got it. Or, you know, Sariputta shows up and in two weeks he's fully enlightened. Um, uh, that's actually a wonderful sutta. You know, if, if we had uh, had a couple of weeks, I would probably do a whole thing on that one because those instructions are very... But the short piece of it is, um, and it's not actually explained in the text, but, uh, but anybody at that time would have gotten what it was about, was that uh, he was following a Vedic tradition 
that was uh, looking intensely uh, to find the true self. Uh, and there was there's this whole tradition that were tree worshippers, et, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So he had been doing this intense practice of looking for the self. And if you look at the early part of that sutta, he had become disillusioned. You know that he was doing this practice and he couldn't get there and it wasn't working. And he didn't know why, and so he had this sense: well, the Buddha may be somebody that can help me. The Buddha saw this guy with his bark cloth. He recognized what his practice was, and so he gave him instructions that were quite specific. Uh, and what he said to him, uh, and there's a bunch of different phrases he said it, is there is no self. You know, you've been looking for something that doesn't exist. And this guy had been looking for it for a long, long time and had this deep experience that he couldn't find it. And the Buddha just said, you know, that you're seeing it accurately. It's not there. And he got it and went out. Now... The Buddha could tell me that. Well, I know that kind of intellectually, but not to that same depth of practice. And so this, this is what the Buddha, you know, apparently had this huge genius at, was actually recognizing and choosing different techniques for people that would just sort of leverage what they had done and just push them that last, that last little way. But he of the bark cloth. Yeah, it's... A, Okay, any more? Shall we do the eighth? We don't have to stop at the eighth. We can keep going if you want. <laughs> so uh, what happens is, um, is eventually as you keep practicing, it takes a little bit. I might have said, I don't know if the individuals, I don't know if I said it here, about how um, it takes a little bit of energy to push a thought into memory. Okay, so you have an experience, and actually to remember it, it takes a very small amount of energy just to get it stored. And we do this very automatically, you know, and without even thinking about it. But it does take just a little bit. Well, it gets so relaxed that you stop forming memories. Okay? And it takes a little bit of energy to take uh, sensory sensations and actually recognize what it is. It takes just a little bit, and it gets so relaxed that even that perception goes offline. And subjectively, if there's no perception and no memory, it, uh, the subjective experience is that you blacked out. There's this hole. And if somebody's looking at it, and you're sitting there meditating from the outside, it's like you didn't fall over or you didn't evaporate, but, but you just have no record of you know, that past half minute or minute or whatever it was. Uh, and you won't see this coming. Um, but you'll be sitting there and it just seems like, oh, I, you just came back. Not quite sure where you were, but you came back from somewhere is what, is what the feeling is. And it's very similar. It's a very similar sensation to nodding off. So it feels, oh, I just fell asleep. But if... Uh, if you look inside and it feels a little groggy or the mind is fuzzy, you probably did nod off. But sometimes you look in and the mind is just clear. It's just very still. So it doesn't make sense that, it, um, that you actually fell asleep. So I invented this term. It's my own. I call it winking out uh, just because... Um, there's a whole range of phenomena in which this, this can happen. I just wanted some 
broad term that I that I could use. Um, and that's what it kind of feels like. It feels like you winked out for a moment, and, and now you're back. And um, and what you do at that point is that. Um, well, let me back up a minute. So, so what's happened is the physiology has gone offline for just a moment. And you went into this uh, fairly deep state, and there was some bit of tension that drew you back. Maybe very subtle, you may not know what it is. And so the instructions, and they're actually <laughs> in the text, are to look back into that empty space and see if you notice anything. And you just came back from nowhere, so like, how would that happen? And it's amazing. Sometimes you look back, and oh, then you can begin to remember. There's a little flash of a memory or light or an image or some little push or pull or something. And if you see anything in there, it doesn't mean anything. Don't worry about it. But just six are it. And so this is all in service of getting the six R process uh, completely automated so the mind can do it without you actually at the helm. Um, this is hard to describe if you haven't experienced it, so I'm always looking around for pieces. Um, this is from Paul Bowles. It's called The Baptism of Solitude. Uh, he says, Immediately when you arrive in the Sahara for the her- first time, or the tenth time, you notice the stillness. Then there is the sky, compared to which all other skies seem faint-hearted efforts. Solid and luminous, it is always the focal point of the landscape. Presently, you either shiver and hurry back inside familiar walls, or you go on standing there and let something very peculiar happen to you, something that everyone who lives there has undergone, and what the French call the baptism of solitude. It's a unique sensation. And it has nothing to do with loneliness, for loneliness presupposes memory. Loneliness presupposes memory. Here in this holy mineral landscape, lighted by stars like flares, even memory disappears. Nothing is left but your own breathing and the sound of your heart beating. That's not quite the eighth jhana, but if you have a sense, if you have a feel for that place, that's that's where it goes. This is another one of my favorite poems. If you have any fear, any worry, any concern, you, 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 just, you actually couldn't get in there. Um, uh, I, 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 may, I may hold the world record for, for hanging out in the seventh without going into the eighth. Um, and I finally I said to Bonte, I said, I can't go into the eighth. And he laughed and he said, that's right. 
You know, if there's a sense of I, that's that's like that's too much. You know, he kept saying to me, "Just get out of the way." And I'd say, "Well, do I six? He said, "Get out of the way." Well, no, get out of the way. <laughs> get out of the way. Um, here's another image of it. It's uh, by Gail Turnbull. I remember once in a far-off country. It doesn't matter where or even when. It had been a hot day and a lot of work to be done, and I was tired. I stopped by the road and walked across a field and came to the shores of a lake. The sun was bright on the water, and I swam out from the shore into the deep, cold water, far out of my depth, and forgot. For a moment, I forgot where I had come from, where I was going, what I had done yesterday, what I had to do tomorrow, even my work, my home, my friends, even my name, even my name, alone in the deep water with the sky above. And whether that lake um, was a lake of the shore of some great sea or some lost tributary of time itself, for a moment I looked through, I passed through, I had one glimpse as it happened one day in that far-off country for a moment. It was so. So you have a feel for that? That's all, all that stuff points into, pointers into what the experience of the eight jhana can be like. So it can conceptually be quite, can be a little freaky, have your memory gone, but there is so much equanimity and there's so much uh, sense of uh, wellness and rightness that it, it just isn't. It, it just doesn't. It just doesn't. How is the sense of self, or what's it like sort of re-emerging, I guess? Like, is the self kind of like has to crystallize around your identity? Uh, I'm going to talk about that in two nights. Uh, I mean, I could do a quick one now, but it just feels like it would be, yeah, it, it really takes some time, to, you know, to go into that. Um, and what happens in the eighth jhana then, when you come back, you look back in there, you see what's there. And if there is, you six are. If you don't see anything, it's okay. Uh, and the mind will be deeply still, deeply quiet. And that becomes your object of meditation. And you don't send it out. You can try. I did. <laughs> this is Doug speaking here. Um, it feels a little bit like sending space into space. There's just nothing there. And so you let your awareness just rest there. And then if anything comes up, you six are it. So when I was talking to Bonte about it, and I translated that as do nothing, six are everything. And he said, yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, the other one, you use this one a lot earlier. It's, it's, it's why it's in the, in the refuges of aspirations of uh, just seeking clarity and acceptance. That's all. Just see. Um, just an observation. I get the feeling from listening to you that you really can't... You, there is no fear going into the eighth jhana because there's no... 
my perception of what you're saying is that you don't actually know you're there until you come out of it. Yeah, pretty typical of people going from the seventh into the eighth. You know, they'll they'll say things like, you know, can you be awake and asleep at the same time? Um, and one of the markers of the eighth is that actually sometimes people, you know, it's like when you're fifth, sixth, seventh, you, you know, you can be pretty sure about where you are. You get in the eighth, and it's like you're not quite sure, you know, what's going on. So that's not a necessarily a dead giveaway, but it's kind of a clue when somebody's there. And they can be just confused, but oftentimes, you know, there's not enough information there to know quite what's going on. So, because things are starting to go offline. Is this the point where you define going into the state of the stream enter? No. Okay. This, the, this, 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 is the, this is the platform. Uh, so, do we want to go on and do that too? So, so what happens from here is your practice becomes just hanging out in this place, doing nothing, six R and everything. Uh, and then just a wink out, you know, and then come back and, um, and you do that. And that at some point what will happen is that uh, you wink out and you come back and there's this huge... Uh, rush of energy. It's not energy, it's this huge rush of relief. It's like, wow, you know, what's that? You know, what's that? And, um, and that means that you've gone into Nibbana. I mean, there's some other markers, I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, but um, the that's why I can describe it metaphorically. It's it's sort of like you have an old desktop computer, and uh, and somebody pulls the plug, and it just goes off, and then you plug it back in, and it boots back up again. Only there's a little bit of malware that's missing. You know, um, and um, people have different experiences with this. Um, it's usually pretty palpable if, if you know what to look for. Um, a couple things actually come out of it. You know, one is um, the identification with the personal self. It gets actually completely severed. It's just gone. And then, and then you come back in, and all the habits that are kind of wired in the brain and wired in the personality around self, those are still activated, so all those stuff come back up. And so there's a sense of self actually comes back in a little bit, but you don't quite buy it. You know, you can see it and you can feel it, but you don't quite buy it. I love uh, Gurdjieff, where he said, uh, once you have a taste of the truth, you can't fool yourself quite as sincerely. Um, in the text, um, part of what they say is another thing that comes out of that is you no longer believe in rites and rituals. Well, most of us here, we don't believe in rites and rituals anyway. I think what it's really about is, is that you also sever a lot of the cultural conditioning. It's like you just don't buy the cultural mores. I mean, you can still live within them, but you, can, you don't see those as an absolute standard. Um, and... Um, it's 
typically when people come back the first time, not always, but sometimes they have a hard time sleeping for a long time because um, there's such a, this, this, this sense of relief. And, um, and I remember talking to Bonte when he said to me, said, uh, you know, welcome, welcome to Sotapanna land. And I said, is that all it is? Sotapanna land. So, yeah, Sotapanna. He said, just became a Sotapanna. Uh, and I said, is that all there is? He smiled and said, that's, that's, that's it. And, uh, and I remember saying to him, I said, okay, I think now I know how to start meditating. Um, and it's not that all this stuff wasn't important, but there's, there's just a kind of shift of, uh, in, uh, in seeing how simple and actually quite accessible all this stuff is. It's not that far away. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's right here all the time. And sometimes it feels like we have to go through all these antics, you know, to kind of get there. But when you see it, you know, and then you come back and, um, I don't know how far I want to go with this. Um, in Eastern cultures, what happens when people come back is they tend to go off into monasteries that are actually protected settings. In the West, what we do is we in the West what we do is we throw them back onto the streets. Um, and uh, and stream entry does nothing for cleaning up your psychological stuff. You may not buy it, you may not believe it, but all that stuff is operating, uh, and it does an awful lot for kicking out from under you, all the defenses, all the things that kept your defenses in place. Uh, and so um, I, I just know some people that have gone through, you know, these huge, it feels like a breakdown, you know. It's like, <laughs> I mean, not immediately. Um, but there's a, there's a tendency if they sort of hang in and go with it. It's like it has a breakdown, they come right through the other side just, just really, really quickly. Uh, it may be something that feels like, I'm going to take, you know, three years in the psych ward, but it's, you know, maybe two or three days. Um, and Brown. pardon? Are you with Brene Brown? Uh, she's a uh, she's a, a, a writer, spiritual writer with psycho. She calls her break. She de- she defines that period in her life as breakdown slash cross out spiritual awakening. Right. And it's, it's all yeah. mixed together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say, too, I don't want to say too much because um, this all interacts with whatever your conditioning is. It's, it's, it's not like the brain is instantly rewired in a different way, so like all those habits and stuff are in there. You may not believe them quite sincerely, but they, they still have a power. So how this stuff shows up can be you know, different for a lot of people. Um, and uh, and some people go through it smoothly, and some people, you know, end up with a rough ride. The basic instructions at that time is to continue meditating, uh, and then there's then there will be more periods of um, well, there's winking out, which can be an eighth jhana thing. There's winking out that could be naroda, and there's winking out that can be you know fully into nibbana, where everything is stopped for a moment. Uh, and of course, you don't know you don't know nibbana. It's nothing. It's really just nothing. There's nothing. It's only when you come out. And uh, and how people sort of move through that is uh, 
is really a, a function of a lot of your conditioning. So it's uh, it's quite you know personal in that sense, even if you don't believe in a person. So you come back and you kind of lose yourself. You see through a lot of it, but you still have the pattern. So then it's full awakening, like you know, complete unsurpassed enlightenment or whatever. Is that where you enter the stream enough times where you basically kind of cut all the habits, or do you have those for the rest of your life? Oh, no, no. Eventually, you can wear them out. And as we were talking about a couple nights ago about deep, subtle intentions in uprooting them, eventually they get uh, get uprooted. Um, there are some scholars, um, and, and I, this makes some sense to me. Uh, I don't know if it's widespread, but they call stream entry enlightenment because one of the qualities that comes out of it, and you can see it, it's real clear, and people come back and say, ah, I know what I've got to do. People don't come out of it and say, I'm done. It's like they see clearly what they have to do. And the text, uh, what, what they, they call it, is you have complete faith in the Buddha. This was a traditional culture, understand. And what the Buddha had to say, it's not faith in the Buddha because the Buddha was the Buddha and he's our guy and we're going to stick by him no matter what. Uh, the Buddha didn't invent any of this. He just discovered it. And so you discover it and you actually see, you know, that it's not so much faith in him as a person, but you, but you sort of resonate, you know, with what he saw. And it's because you see that directly, so you have confidence in that, and you know what you've got to do. And then when you've done it, when you've done all that you have to do, that's liberation. And in the text, that's how it's described. You know, uh, he has done what needs to be done. It's sort of it's a sort of stock phrase for liberation. So enlightenment is just seeing what you got to do, and there can be a long time. And initially, you know, in the tradition, uh, what it says is that you can uh, come back and re um, and be reborn up to seven times. And I think it's a numerological thing. All it's all it's saying is that. I mean, my my sense of it is like you've gone over the continental divide. You know, and the momentum is flowing the other direction, and it's all over for you. It's just a matter of time, you know, that, that something has been set. It's not completely true, you know, right at first. If you work really hard, you can pull back from it, but why would you? And it's just, and, and then as, the, as it goes deeper and deeper and deeper, it just it keeps clearing out until, until you're gone. Would you say, so along those lines, would you say then that in the text where... You know, there's a description, and somebody shows up and, and practices for just a month, and they reach enlightenment. That they're not describing the big full enlightenment. It's they have hit a portion of that, and there's still more to do. Well, you know, the, the way I describe it is this is how I've heard some people talking about it and using this language. Uh, and it makes sense to me, but I think people use the language in lots of different ways. Uh, I wish I owned the word, but I don't. Um, so you kind of have to look at the context and see how they're using it, whether they're, they're talking about this actually full confidence and being really clear about what you have to do uh, versus actually having having done it and completed it. So it's Right. I think it, it could be the for the arahat, right? But for 
indeterminately coming back and back again until all the seven being in the Buddha. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I understand that, uh, that, that conception, uh, the, the phrase, the word bodhisattva first appears in any text anybody's found about the first or second century BC, which is like two or three hundred years after the Buddha. And so in the text where he's talking about when I was an unenlightened bodhisattva, a lot of these texts were not finalized until like 500 years later. And so I think this whole notion of the bodhisattva, I, I, I don't know, but I, there's some people who make a convincing argument that I actually wasn't there at the Buddha's time. It's a, it, that's an understanding that's been... Nagarjuna? No, Nagarjuna doesn't... Nagarjuna is probably considered second to the Buddha in terms of influence. And he was a first and second century AD um, figure, just absolutely brilliant, just brilliant. Um, and I, I mean, I've read his text um, not deeply. Th- was there anything about bodhisattva in, uh, in, 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 yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I didn't read it all of it either, but it actually doesn't show up uh, that I remember in any of it. And uh, Gail and I have been in a study group uh, uh, together, and we were reading that. But no, I don't, uh, I don't think it shows up in the Garjana. So, so what happens in the stages is, is, is there are other things. So, uh, you know, Sotapanna can go back seven times, and then uh, uh, Sakadagami can uh, come back uh, as many as one times, and Anagami is... Um, is done, but may be reborn in other realms, and an arahat is completely done. And uh, and I suspect this is sort of like what happened with karate when it came to the West. That in because uh, in some of the traditional martial arts forms, there's uh, there's a white belt and there's a black belt. I mean that's it, you know. So you, you're a white belt and you work in the stuff, and you get to a certain point, you become black belt. And you get these Westerners over learned this stuff. Well, they want all these graduated steps in between. Uh, and so, you know, so we have, you know, green belts and blue belts and brown belts and depending on the tradition, all these steps in between. And I think for the Brahmins looking the stuff after the Buddha, that this thing began to get inserted in there about these in-between steps. Uh, and I think what's most important in all of this is actually stream entry. Uh, we actually see what has to be done. Uh, and then Arahat. And there are these stages in between that I think... Uh, I don't know whether they're you know they're real or not, or whether markers or, or what. And um, and when I'm an arahat, I will let you know. <laughs> Could you give an example of one thing that has to be done? So, that, what are you ta- what, what's the realm that you're talking about? Oh, um, um, so what happens um, going into Sakadagami is is the um, uh, um, greed and aversion um, drops in half. Yeah, yeah it, it really weakens. And then uh, you know, with, a, with an anagami, it disappears. Uh, and then between that and arahat, there are all the other well, classic... The yeah, it's the, it's the fetters uh, that, that get gradually dissolved. 
so th- so there's 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 no um, uh, there's no stickiness left. There's actually a feeling of it. There's no stickiness. There's nothing that, that hangs on anymore. I think. I mean, that's what makes sense to me. But I'll let you know when I. I know this is a hugely sticky question, especially because teachers are forbidden from talking about their entertainments. So let me, let me just say this: Do you do you think that there are any arahats alive today, and have you met any? Now I know that someone there's a general consensus that perhaps Ajahn Chah was an arahat. Of course, nobody is going to go up to him and ask him. But you, you read interviews with some of the students, and they'll kind of probably say, "Yeah, he, he probably was." Yeah, I I've heard that too. I don't I don't have any exposure. Uh, I mean, I've read his words, but you know, so I have no idea. And uh, who besides an arahat could actually, you know, you know recognize another? Um, uh, it's actually uh, um, it's monks, and they're not forbidden. They can, but if you misrepresent your attainment, that's enough to get thrown out of the order completely. So the operational way they work with it is they just don't talk about it, period, just to be safe, because this stuff gets so subtle, you know, that, that, uh, that what do you really know, you know? I'm not a monk, so I'm not under that. Have you ever seen the Chin Zen Yang talk about his? The who? Yang. No. He's a, a Western yeah. voice who, uh, I think he, he talks about enlightenment Yeah. So you know, I think what's really important about all this, you know, is, is being is, is there's actually a lightness of spirit. Um, they you know they almost seem playful. There was this uh, monk uh, John Travis was telling me about. You know, he may have been an artist, may fully enlightened, and he had Alzheimer's. Uh, and they took him to this conference in Washington D.C. and he kept wandering out of the hotel. Well, there's places in Washington, D.C. You don't want people wandering around the streets. And John's thought was, this guy is perfectly safe. I mean, there was such a sort of lightness and childish about him. It's like, you know, it's like almost impossible for somebody to harm this guy. So, um, you know, that's, that's what we're looking for. And, and that's what's, uh, you know, useful and helpful. And the rest of the stuff feels like, uh, I don't know, collecting marriage badges or... Cub Scout arrows the sole of your shirt or something. So that, that anecdote about the, the possibly like monk with Alzheimer's walking around, um, that brings up this question for me of, you know, as a street manager or even beyond, as a full arhat or whatever in between, are there, there must be these, these correlates in the brain that never be like the destruction of your hippocampus or whatever can't get to, and if that's the case, do you think there's some point at which destruction of the brain, you know, maybe it's not in the memory centers, but somewhere else where there's maybe a deeper kind of enlightenment embedded, like, do you think you can possibly destroy your attainmentship at a certain level, the physiological destruction, or at a certain point you think it's indestructible no matter what you do to the brain? I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, you know, my, my, my sense of it is that, uh, you know, that awareness is, uh, I've talked to a couple of people that say that awareness I see as a fundamental property of the universe. 
It's not ours. Uh, we live in a universe where something can know something. And I think our nervous system just amplifies it. Uh, because there, there's a sense, you know, uh, the eighth John is called neither perception or non-perception. I'm sorry, there's stuff that happens in there. But it feels, it, it seems completely different, you know, from the neurologically enhanced stuff. So, you know, and even in Buddha's map, I called it pre-perception perception. perception. Uh, it was my phrase for the eighth jhana. So, and there's, there's also just lots and lots of studies of, um, of people who have been brain dead and brought back to life with verifiable memories uh, of what was going on while they were brain dead. Sam Parnia has this book called Erasing Death, and it's just fascinating. So it chill goes up my spine to you know, some of the things that they can actually document empirically. But I think, I, I, I don't know of anybody, um, 100 billion um, neurons, I don't know how many connections. Um, and um, when I was studying neuropsychology, this was years ago, it's come a long way since then, but, uh, but one of my f- professors was saying that basically the, the paradigm is sort of like you take a watch you know, and open up and you take a gear out and close it up and you look at it and you try to figure out uh, what that gear did. You know, because a lot of the studies would look at lesions in the brain. Let's zap this and see what happens. And, you know, who knows? It's so complex. And that, um, so I, I, I'm, I, I just don't know what the, the correlates are. But we do know very clearly, I mean, uh, both medically and in terms of research and the earliest case that I, yeah, I, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. No. Yeah, true. I but don't. You get similar stories of people. Who, you don't get people with iron bars through their brain, but you do get enlightened people who actually then become senile. And exactly like you were saying, somebody was telling me about a couple of Buddhist uh, monks who were uh, both enlightened and senile and described them as delightful to be around and that they were absolutely charming, wonderful people. So you may have a cognitive decline, but not a decline in characterological style. That may be possible. I just want to be, be a little careful because there's some people that have a, like a huge interest and curiosity about this, and I think it's wonderful. I have a lot too, and there's other people for whom it just doesn't feel relevant. Oh, okay. So I just I want to be not. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you can go from the first right out. 
Uh, Sariputta might have done that. Right. No, they become sotapanas. You, you, you really have to have practice. Well, no. So if there's a monk that had a lot of practice, that you know, right. that that, I mean, that could happen. It, it, yeah. Um, because they had practice, they were disciples. Right. Um, um, so right. it wasn't like they were just villagers right. who wandered in. Yeah. But I'm hearing the discourse. Right. So so uh, so again, what the Buddha was laying out was a graduated path. That's systematic that anybody can, you know, anybody can follow, um, but it is possible to sort of leap ahead and move through those those really quickly. And I, and I think that that happens with, um, like in the case of Bodhidharma or someone else like that. All of those things are inherent at a certain point, developmentally, whatever, and then, then it just is the illusion that someone becomes enlightened that quickly. Um, but it's it's like the Zen koan, you know, it's yeah. someone, someone hears something over. Hit on the head with the ball or the clapper or whatever, and right. you know, it's, yeah. it just seems that there is that to the to the un, the uninitiated on the outside, but you're not there to see the path. Buddha had a bunch of things that he called imponderables, the ones that would drive you crazy trying to figure out. One of them being uh, a, a, a Buddha's mind. And so, um, just for the sake of the, of the practice stuff, we don't want to go too far into the imponderables. Um, uh, it's, it's fascinating, and I, I think it's fine to do that, but I just want to kind of respect uh, where, where people are, and it can be a distraction. Uh, are there any other questions or comments that really have to do with the practice or the application or where we are right now, as opposed to what's just actually speculation? Yeah, um, we'll talk about that uh, more towards the end of the retreat. Uh, but to, to sort of go at it quickly, um, this is, uh, is, is a training to open out the awareness uh, and to deepen it and to cultivate the, the capacity to see more clearly what's going on uh, and then how you apply that to the outside world. I mean, there's just lots of political, socio-economic, you know, all kinds of analyses, etc. Et, et, et um, and I think um, there's something deep in the human uh, in humanness, probably in higher mammals, <laughs> that um, that wants to be of help. And so I think part of all this is is figuring out how 
how you do relate to the larger world. And um, none of us can fix everything. And all of us, I think, have some role to play. And so, to, so if you've chosen a life where you are engaged in the world, then I think part of it is figuring out what your role is going to be in that. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, uh, probably not so much because uh, income distribution, uh, uh, racial issues, um, political, you know, there's just all, all, all that, that sort of business which uh, we could spend a whole lot of time at. So this is actually sort of uh, trying to create a protective space to... <coughs> Cultivate a certain way of being with that, and we have to have to work that out with ourselves or with other people. And actually, being in the ministry, particularly in a liberal, progressive bunch of people, um, you know, that was deeply embedded in the world out there. I mean, I spent a lot of time with that. But uh, here, it's a it, it is a different kind of topic. It's an important one for integrating it. You had enough. You want to hear one more little thing? Let's see if I've got it here. This one's not so easy. So you have, you have, you have to kind of, this is a little bit, a little bit of work, but it's, it's, it's actually worth it if you just stick with it. Consider a world without consciousness. The darkness is a bubbling cauldron of energy and vibrating matter locked in the, uh, in the dance of thermal agitation. Through shared electrons of strange attraction of unlike charges, quivering molecules not free to roam absorb and emit their characteristic quantile packages of energy within the surrounding fog. Stay with it. Free gas molecules almost oblivious to gravity but buffeted in all directions by their neighbors, form swirling turbulent flows or marches in zones of compression and expansion. A mass of solar flux and cosmic radiation from events long past crisscross space with their radiant energy and silently mix with the thermal glow of living creatures whose hungry metabolic systems pour their infrared waste into the chaotic milieu. But in the warmth of their sticky protein bodies, the dim glow of consciousness is emerging to impose its own brand of organizations on this turbulent mix of energy matter. The active filter of consciousness illuminates the darkness, discards all irrelevant radiation, and in a grand transmutation converts uh, the amplitudes and the relevance. The molecules erupt into flavors of bitterness or sweetness. Electromagnetic electromagnetic frequencies burst with color. Hapless air pressure waves become the laughter of children. And the impact of passing molecules fill a conscious mind with the aroma of roses on a warm summer afternoon. which is to say that our consciousness deeply filters 
screens out a vast amount of stuff and reforms into things that we call laughter of children, aromas, lights. Um, What happens sometimes in the deeper jhanas, I won't say you see all that, but you get an appreciation for how arbitrary our constructs are. Not to be ignored, it's a middle path, but how arbitrary they are. May all beings know their inherent lightness of spirit. May all beings know clearness, uh, clearness, kindness. May all beings know the deepest kinds of happiness. May the benefits that we gain from this practice be used to serve not only our well-being, but the well-being of creatures around us. May it be so. Blessed be. So if you've got good energy, continue meditating. Take a half hour with yoga if you like. I think we're going to pass.